0: What is transgressive? is not sex. No, no, listen to me. I'm no problem with riots.
1: Falling in love is a problem.
0: I don't have to be
2: helpful. Wait, I mean, why do I have to be
3: helpful? Look at our priceless art collection, and I think what a great country.
0: I'm good for it.
4: Hello, and welcome to another week of Humidum, and a special hello to our. Solitary listener in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, whom I can only assume is Donald Trump. This week we've got a stellar lineup for you. Vinaxis returns to give us some political analysis of the current issues besieging a nation ruled by Barnaby Joyce temporarily for two days. Jenny Sonta returns with the Spew Review, looking at Season 19 of South Park. And Georgina McNeil discusses the recently uncovered New Caravaggio painting in what the fuck am I looking at? Plenty to learn this week on Humidum. Stay tuned for the whole episode. I never explain anything. I doubt many of my colleagues spend
2: a lot of time (laughs) with you, Sophie.
4: (laughs) Uh, Miriam, in the Sydney Morning Herald from the 16th of March, identical Perth twins Anna and Lucy DeChinke have vowed to fall pregnant At the same time, a bit of background to these two, though. They're 31 years old. They've spent almost $250,000 on cosmetic surgery enhancements, including lip fillers and breast implants, to look more alike. And they've been dating their electrical mechanic boyfriend, Ben Byrne, aged 32, for four years and have told SBS's Insight program they must have children at the same time because their bodies must be the same quote from one twin, if she got pregnant, I'd make sure I got pregnant. I'd make sure it happens for our body, like both the same. What do you think?
0: Well, firstly, they were originally on a current affair. So, (laughs) I mean, I've seen them. They're revolting. I mean, what they've done is they've tried to look the same, but what they've achieved is ugly. And secondly, I mean, who is this creep that's dating these two girls at the same time? It's
4: sleazy, isn't it? It's
0: just disgusting. It's and just,
4: it's perfectly legal. There's nothing ethically wrong with it, but it's just weird.
0: Oh, look, he would be getting high fives off every bloke that he knew. Oh,
4: absolutely. He'd be the king. But I mean, the obsessive nature of these sisters' pursuit of, Id- of being identical is where one of them said, if she walks a few metres, I need to walk a few metres because we have to burn the same calories. It's sick. And they have the same job. I mean, I don't understand. I
0: don't understand. It's, you know, I know that twins have connections that other people don't. Yeah. But this is taking it to a whole other level.
4: This is a whole other level. It's
0: it's it's a movie. It's a movie that you would make about weirdo twins that eventually kill people some
4: sort of sequel to the human centipede maybe
0: oh absolutely Uh, you know i'm amazed they haven't attached their ass to their mouth yet
4: well they're that obsessed with being twins maybe they want to take it to the next level and become conjoined twins
0: yeah but you know what they would have to join each ass to each mouth so it would just be a circle of shit not like one in through seven people out the back it's a circle of shit i tell
4: you what it's already a circle of shit
0: it's already a circle of shit
4: I'm joined now by Vanaxis, roving correspondent of all things left wing, right wing, and, and whatever else wingless. <laughs> Vanaxis, what have you got for us this week? Well, I mean,
1: I have the usual disappointment and loathing that many young millennials have when they follow politics. Mm. Obviously, there have been some pretty, you know. Fairly interesting developments in our own country. Bill Shorten is looking like he's in with a chance, mm. which is really exciting, warms the cockles of my heart. Um, you know, he, it definitely is a case of the tortoise in the hare in that he is a reptile stuck in a shell. Except in Malcolm's Turcum's case, it's not really a hare. He's just more like taking a bet with how bad a government they can run before they won't get elected. They seem to be getting as many shit fights. As Labor ever had. Uh, And it's worse because (laughs) there's been the nice little factional divisions between Tony Abbott's old guard and Malcolm, which obviously everyone on the left has just relished, Mm. you know, and Corey Bernardi sniffing around the corridors talking about starting his own conservative party makes followers of history look at this and go, oh, is this going to be their DLP movement? Is it going to bring in 20 years of socialist utopia? I mean... I don't know because I don't know how successful Corey Bernardi would be. And I suspect with the changes to the voting reform that the Greens brought in because they're... mm, Nick Xenophon will do so well, he will probably get three whole quotas if it was a double dissolution and he would probably get two in a regular election. Mm. Where's the room for a new Conservative Party in South Australia?
4: Now, I want to raise something with you. Um, You're familiar with... Uh, Liberal MP Dennis Jensen, who lost his pre-selection, he says over a shit sheet that's released about a book that he wrote. Just I actually have
1: a copy of that book, and I am—I haven't started reading it, but I. I do have such a copy of The Sky Warriors.
4: Yeah, it's $6.51 uh, six, $6. on Kindle at the moment. Oh, I didn't pay for it. <laughs> Obviously. Um, <laughs> and uh, the interesting thing is that the Australian reported described the novel's surprisingly graphic sex scenes, and subsequent reporting started calling it a work of erotic fiction. I quote now from Miriam Robbins' excellent article today in Crikey. Um, she says... I don't agree with this characterisation. It's a fairly standard military thriller in the style of Tom Clancy, whom Jensen nominates as one of his favourite authors. The overwhelming majority of the book is taken up with intensely detailed descriptions of military weaponry and tactics. Once you read the book, it becomes clear that Sky Warrior's eroticism tag is preposterous. The only things described in explicit and loving detail in the 200-page novel are military operations. As for the sex that's in there, the one sex scene is brief towards the beginning, The villain gets a blowjob. Jensen ain't no Anais Nin, Mm -hmm. nor was he trying to be. Why do we have a situation in Australia where politicians... I mean, is it healthy, do you think, that they can't talk openly about sex, even if it is not that open? No. Look, I'll tell you why Dennis
1: Jensen isn't allowed to talk openly about sex. Because he has been a very vocal opponent of pretty much anything else that he hasn't liked. So whether it's been television, whether it has been porn on the internet, whether it has been other books. So I no, d I, I don't think he has I don't think he has the right to, to discuss anything because he's already told people, whether they're adults or not, that they can't be trusted with such materials. So for him to put in something that has even a mild amount of steam and it's like mmm no, it's not for you, buddy. But the conservatives are always sickos. And oh, always... the more the more restrained they are, the sicker they are. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, Corey Bernardi, who pretends to be a holy shit. I'm telling you, that man. There's, it's more than just hating gay people that puts a smirk on that man's face. I'd like to dig up his backyard. That's all I'm saying.
4: Um, speaking of ancient old creatures, Bronwyn Bishop is going to looks like she's pressing for McKellar, um, and Dick Smith Which, is again
1: now- is fabulous um, because Dick Smith. <laughs> will be a, I mean, we've obviously had Clive Palmer, and now it looks like he's going to be leaving Parliament House in Disgrace, which I guess is an end to that particular episode that no one finds surprising. No. It'll be very interesting to have Dick Smith, because obviously he is going to smash um, Broman Bishop into oh, yeah. hundreds of little pieces, which almost makes me wonder why she's doing it, because the polling is so against her even in her domain of strength and with all of her dark sorcery, Hmm. she is going to be left very, very embarrassed. And it reminds me of John Howard when not only when he decided he was going to run again in 2007, Hmm. not only did he lose government, but he lost his own seat. I know. You know, the final fly on the dog shit of the lawn. But this is the thing
4: with the world's oldest non-clonal organisms. They just never know when to quit. Well, I mean, well, what else can they do? I mean... And yeah, and- Ruddock is happy to bow out gracefully. But I suppose oh, he has more dignity. Well,
1: I mean, Ruddock is one of these people who, when I was in high school, I used to be like, that man is evil mm. and, you know, I hated him for years. I'm sure many people on the left did. Mm. And now, compared to the current front bench, and I'm like, oh, he was actually rather charming. I'd invite him over for supper. He's at least coherent And, you know, if I'm going to be fisted by a Tory government, I want them to at least have a modicum of they know what they're doing.
4: Now, I've just noticed on Twitter, uh, Scott Morrison MP has written, it appears my Twitter account may have been accessed by someone unauthorised to do so, full stop. This has been rectified, full stop.
1: (laughs) I don't believe that anyone took his Twitter account. Because right. if they had, it would have just been hundreds of cock photos. <laughs> like, if Anonymous or someone had gotten on with it, I mean, they would have they would have made use of it. But, no, I, I, I'd almost be inclined to believe that nothing happened at all because if there had been, he probably just accessed it from his phone <laughs> and he didn't recognise the IP address. Ed, final thoughts
4: for the week. My
1: final thoughts for the week. I would just like to reiterate how fabulous it is that Tony Blair has so much stench associated with him from this Panama Paper leak, especially in the wake of him saying he would never vote for a left-leaning Labor government. And I hope if there is, you know, I hope there'll be good reckoning for him to come because uh, if there was ever a man who needs to have his legs broken by unionists... Oh, I think it's that man.
4: All right, well, we'll look forward to hearing more about that in our special mm-hmm. investigation into the Panama Papers and the Central Coast next episode. Done. flesh
1: zombies. Oh
3: why are you
1: Demonic Hill base.
4: Never ending. It's just like the whole Gina's hole. Joining us now by Satellite Connection from our Gosford Studios is Jenny Sonta for The Spew Review. Tell us, Jenny, what have you got this week?
3: Oh, good evening all. Uh, This week we're looking at the riotous new season of South Park, season 19. And Kyle, we wanna make your dreams come true. And so here is your hero, Caitlyn Jenner. I just want to say thank you, Kyle, for your beautiful words of support. Now, Kyle, we got another little surprise for you. We told you we were flying you back home, but the truth is you're getting a ride back all the way with your hero. How do you like that? (laughs) Buckle up, buckaroo. South Park is now into its 19th season and still remains incredibly relevant, which is an incredible feat considering it's been running for 19 seasons. I'm a firm believer that this is due to the fact that people are shit and always will be shit. Therefore, South Park has always will have fresh material with which to provide biting moral, social and political commentary. Particularly this newest season, which focuses on the insanity of political correctness and the social justice warriors who try to enforce it. This season, Stone Park take aim at Caitlyn Jenner, Donald Trump, Bill Cosby, Jared Fogle, ISIS, Whole Foods, food critics, hipsters, and, of course, Canadians like I said shit the newest changes to the South Park format is the serialization of the show in this season and its predecessor as opposed to the one-off plot lines of anal probes and human senti pads now we have a story arc to connect all the riotous antics now if you're like my mother and just see this show as toilet humor this new season also teaches us some valuable life lessons For instance, did you know that gentrification leads to child labour and urban decay? Or that ISIS are just simply a bunch of kids dressed up as scary gay ninjas? Or that not giving to charities actually gives starving African children iPads? Mmm, important. The main story arc begins with a new principal being hired to make South Park a more progressive place that fits in with today's times. He's called PC Principal. Satirising the current obsession with PC culture and language policing, which essentially suggests that the words we use to describe important issues such as racism, sexism and sexual discrimination are somehow seen as more significant than the issues themselves. Another major plotline shows Mr Garrison as South Park's Donald Trump campaigning for the presidency with running mate Caitlyn Jenner who wants to build a wall between the US and Canada to keep them away from all their cool shit. The boys naturally become embroiled in this thinly veiled critique of Trump's immigration views and Kyle questions the value of Caitlyn Jenner's celebrity, stating that Caitlyn Jenner isn't a hero. His declaration is somehow seen as more outrageous than the fact that Caitlyn Jenner is still the worst type of anti-feminist conservative who was actually against marriage equality and who ran over and killed someone. This is something that South Park also picks up on Having Caitlyn Jenner get in a car and mow down pedestrians in every scene she's in—it's so. fucking <laughs> <laughs> fucking interrupt me, you cunt. <laughs> 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 That's definitely you know us snorting laugh.
4: I just love it. <laughs> Ran over and kill someone is capitalised.
3: Yeah, it needs to be
0: emphasised.
3: This is something that South Park also picks up on. Having Caitlyn Jenner get in a car and mow down pedestrians in almost every scene she is in—it's so good. And just like in real life, the PC theme is perpetrated throughout the whole season. The most obnoxious gym junkie frat boys that check people's privilege by drinking, fighting, fucking chicks, and hazing children. Serial bandwagoner Randy Marsh obviously joins this social awareness group and subsequently draws dicks on Kyle's face for questioning Caitlyn Jenner and if she really is stunning and brave. Kyle then responds, I didn't like Bruce Jenner as a person when he was on the Kardashians and I don't suddenly like But gets corrected for calling him him instead of her. The ultimate irony throughout all seasons of the show is that the kids act as the moral conscience for their parents, showing more perception and understanding than their supposedly wiser elders. And like every academic essay I have ever written, I will end with a quote from Eric Carton, hence why I'm still a bartender. at yes, least we showed him that joking about un-PC things can be important. Starts a dialogue. Season 19 is some of Stone and Parker's greatest... Oh, you're fucking joking me. <laughs> it's just For tele I'm going to lose it. Quick,
4: answer the phone while you're on the fo- Skype.
3: Uh, hello? Hello? Uh, I look, I'm wonderful, Matthew, but I'm in the middle of doing a podcast, so I'm, I can't talk. <laughs> yeah, thanks, mate. Bye. Like, that's the most human excuse I've ever used for, a, for like telling a fucking person to piss off.
4: <laughs> I'm not going to edit it. I'm just leaving the whole segment in.
3: <laughs> <sighs> okay. Season 19 is some of Stone and Parker's greatest work to date. The season is unfathomably hilarious, outrageous and savagely true to life, which keeps me coming back for more. The move to serialization once again proves the show's adaptability and endurance and demonstrates the showrunners' ability to gauge the contemporary nonsense zeitgeist of American politics and celebrity culture. Season 19 of South Park gets eight out of a possible eight zesty garlic from me. <laughs>
4: Fuck, that's a massive, that's a massive rating.
3: Yeah. I mean, out of all the things I've reviewed so far, it's it's my absolute favourite because it never stops making you piss yourself. What do you reckon's the top moment? In, the, in the best. Uh, so the, the top moment is probably sort of the middle of uh, Mr. Garrison's story arc where he eventually gets over this wall that Canada's built to keep them out of their cool shit mm. and uh, he discovers a Canadian Donald Trump ruling over a, an, an empty country because they've all fled because he's a fuckwit. And he snorts, Mr. Garrison snorts animal, animal fuck. Mr. Garrison snorts animal and fucks Canadian Donald Trump to death, which is obviously his immigration policy, is to fuck them all to death of because course. Trump. <laughs> of course uh, But uh, the standout moment is when The town actually lynches and hangs A character called reality They literally kill reality It's so perfectly emblematic of America And it is so true South Like you were saying about House of Cards yeah. Last time, how it's so true To this year in America mm. South Park is exactly the same But so funnier
4: South Park is and always has been even more true A reflection of America Than anything else
3: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's gold. Everyone should watch it and get their kids to watch it because it's good.
4: <laughs>
3: Buckle Thank
4: up, a <laughs> <laughs> So, Miriam, I'm seeing a headline on uh, news.com.au about a woman who hid poo in her handbag.
0: Yeah, so what happened is on Twitter, she did, I think, seven Twitter posts about this. She went on a date <laughs> Yeah. and she went into the toilet and she was quite comfortable. She'd had a few drinks, so she thought... Might get lucky but need to poo before that happens. Like many of us, you know, get ready. You don't want that pain. So what happened is she did a poo and it wouldn't flush. She flushed, flushed it again, wouldn't flush. So what happened is she just had no idea what to do. So she it was a solid formed poo. She picked it up, wrapped it in toilet paper and put it in a handbag. Oh, my
4: God.
0: He was all the while... Sitting out in the lounge room was waiting this, for her to- This
4: was at his house. This was at his house. Ah. Right? So
0: she panicked and put it in her handbag. Then walked out and he's sitting there, you know, there having a few kisses, things are progressing, but all she can think of is I've got a poo wrapped up in my bag, which is two metres away. Kept going, kept going. She kept her cool. Then he got up to go to the toilet it flushed, came back, and she thought this is my chance, had to find an excuse to go to the toilet, flush the poo. It was all done. She said she couldn't face him again. But this woman is my absolute hero because what do you do when that happens? We all know that moment when you poo and you flush and the water starts coming up. It's terrifying. It's horrible. It's terrifying when poo doesn't disappear the way it's supposed to. And I feel like I probably would have done the same in the same situation.
4: Yeah, I don't know. What way would you have got around it?
0: You can't just leave the poo there. I'd prefer for him to find a poo in my bag than a poo floating in the toilet.
4: The worst is when the toilet, for whatever reason will not flush yes and it's not through any fault of yours but the toilet will not flush i have in one of those circumstances found a water bottle filled it up at the sink and dumped heaps of water into the top of the system yeah to make look, it flush. i feel like it that's would the length a dumb, that you go to <laughs> a dumb
0: and dumber situation where he just picks up the whole cistern and pours it out the window something's
4: happened to your bathroom because
0: i guarantee you speak to any person if a poo hasn't gone the way it's supposed to It is a terrifying moment. It's terrifying.
4: (laughs) This poor girl. Well, apparently now she's been inundated with offers of dates from male admirers. Um, She has, she's quite good looking.
0: Yeah, and I think it's great that she has been able to tell this story, but I also think she has fake boobs, which is in her favour.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. What I also find really fascinating about the story is that she was live-tweeting this she was catastrophe. She
0: live-tweeting and she was calling it poop, which made it all the better. What,
4: hashtag poop? She
0: was saying, oh, I put my poop in the bag. I mean, it's, it's poop, isn't it?
4: <sighs> hashtag poop.
0: Hashtag I would have done the same.
4: Dr. Georgina McNeil. <laughs> so...
2: <laughs> I am a doctor. <laughs> I promise. I'm from. Take your pants off. No, I'm actually a
4: doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Georgina McNeil joins me now from the Red Room in Fisher Library at the University of Sydney, a soundproof booth
2: mm, with a slanty table.
4: Unfortunately.
2: Which we will be having words about.
4: Um and what have you got for us this week? I
2: thought we I thought we could cover the recently discovered Caravaggio in the attic, which is a, a Caravaggio painting that's been dug up in the attic of a house near Toulouse.
4: And did you have a relationship with Caravaggio during your doctoral work?
2: Um, No, he's actually – he's a little bit later than my work. I've noticed in some of the coverage that they're calling him a Renaissance master, which is so wrong. Um, But you can't trust journalists to write about art in any way. So Caravaggio is 17th century, which is Baroque. Hmm. So high drama, high sort of like passion. Caravaggio is a beautiful, intensely beautiful painter who – um, renders sort of biblical scenes and saints and quite sort of dry topics in a really um, really just like sort of sexy and
4: dark way. Okay. And we'll, uh, tell us about this. So just the painting the pain
2: that of... was just dug up was a Judith and Holofernes. And I'm trying to sort of remember back to when I studied Caravaggio, but even if there were tons of his paintings around and sort of autograph, it would still be a tremendous find to, to find another one. But for memory, there's not heaps of autograph works of his. He, his style is relatively sort of distinctive, and I think probably what gives it away in this in this instance is not just the style, but it's such a Caravaggio subject. So he's gone for the Judith beheading Holofernes, which there is another sort of known work in existence of his, which shows that um, little bits that are different, but... I mean, looking at it, just looking at this sort of small picture of it online there's parts of it that are maybe a little bit more awkward than he would go with, but I really think it's very likely to to be to be an autograph work,
4: and what's the implications of finding this missing work
2: um It doesn't sort of change things massively, you know, for his canon, particularly because it is a subject that he's depicted before, but it's just another nice, you know, it's another sort of huge, meaty sort of work that art historians can sort of get to work and looking at. And then sort of the interesting work starts of going back through sort of commission documents and seeing if this is a painting that we knew someone in particular had paid for, but we, you know, had since lost it, or whether it's just come completely out of the blue and then you have to sort of figure out where in his career it might have fit. Mm. And obviously, I I think looking at that, it's probably right in the middle. Um, in the beginning, his works, a lot of them have this kind of funny cast to the lighting and they're a bit darker towards the end. This one I would probably put right in the middle. There's something about the Holofernes figure which makes me feel like maybe that's not all his, but the two women – to me, a very, a very Caravaggio.
4: And when you say it's not all his...
2: what? So this this is something which is extremely surprising, I think, for a lot of non-art history initiates, which I think we have sort of vaguely covered when we talked about Damien Hirst. But a lot of those old masters, so Leonardo, Raphael, less so Michelangelo, but people of, of that sort of nature, they don't paint the whole thing by themselves a lot of the time. So a contract from a, a patron to an artist might actually go so far as to specify which parts of the work have to be done by the artist and then which parts can be done by the workshop and then I mean it attribution is it a, a, I think a fascinating area because you know a great example I went to the Ai Weiwei and the Warhol exhibition in Melbourne last week. Mm. And Warhol didn't produce any of his screen prints himself. He took the photos, but then his studio turned them into screens and did all the printing. But they're still designated as Warhols. And again, you know, it's been a consistent theme in this What the Fuck Am I Looking At segment is what does authorship really mean with an artwork? So Caravaggio, for memory, did more of his works himself. It's it's sort of like a a historical trend, I suppose, for the artist to do more of the work themselves. But say in some, you know, in a Raphael or like a sort of even earlier, like a Gothic sort of altarpiece or something, sometimes the contract would stipulate, okay, face and hands must be done by the master, but then, you know, the rest can be done by some schmo, but we still call it, You know, a Fra Angelico. Yeah. Um, And I think when you don't know heaps about art history necessarily, that idea is like sort of... Mind-blowing. Yeah, it's it's baffling to think that we call it a Leonardo, but Leonardo didn't paint all of it. And that is, to be honest, what... (laughs) Like quite a large part of what art historians, um, you know, spend their time looking at is whether you can designate, you know, the whole work to have been Leonardo, whether it's a workshop piece whether it's by sort of one particularly well-known assistant, um, like there was a studio hand that Leonardo may or may not have been having it off with, who subsequently racked off with a whole lot of his drawings. Mm -hmm. Um, And and there are some works which now we don't really consider Leonardo's. We think they're Cesaro, whatever his name is, Cesare.
4: I feel like
2: his name, it was Diablo or something (laughs) because everyone hated him because he nicked all the drawings. Anyway, yeah, so with this Caravaggio, I would guess that it's, I mean, with obviously my huge depth of knowledge of the work, in question. <laughs> um, I would guess that it is largely autograph, but that will be for the art historians to establish and so that's what this work means now.
4: Dr. Georgina McNeil thank you very much for your time today.
2: That's right. I don't have anything else at all to do with my time. Um, unfortunately I have very little else of worth to do with my time.
3: <laughs> there is a recurring campaign. <laughs> Pauline Hanson swanning
4: about like uh, Banquo's ghost. Well, that's your lot for this week of Humidum. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you in a fortnight for more desperate antics, fueled by ice cream and cheese.